Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and some of the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm the host of your show. And today we once again played the old beginning of the podcast where we got to hear Dr. Borlaug and Dr. Sagan, Pendulette, which really um, are inspiring comments that remind us why we do what we do. And today's podcast is about the next edge of technology in the way in which we may be dealing with and synthesizing large sets of data. And we're speaking about artificial intelligence and machine learning in ways that this may or may not contribute to helping us better implement biotechnology solutions. We're speaking with Dr. Gabriel Musso. He's the CSO of Biosymmetrics uh, in Toronto, Canada. So welcome to the podcast, Gabe. Thanks, Kevin. Great to be here. Yeah, it's really cool to have you on because I know almost nothing about AI, yet I'm finding myself and my laboratory in a situation where we're looking at these massive sets of data um, from transcriptomics and genomics and metabolomics and consumer data. And there's probably a lot in here that we could implement in an AI theater down the road. Um, so this is really of interest to me, but something that we hear people buzzing about all the time. But before we get into exactly what it is, could you tell me a little bit about your background and really what you do today? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, a lot, lot to unpack there, but just a little bit about me. So my PhD is in molecular genetics from the University of Toronto. Uh, I focus mainly on computational biology, so using uh, machine learning and other statistical approaches to be able to understand functions of specific genes. I then went off to do a, a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard Medical School. I was focusing mainly on using machine learning to predict uh, outcomes of perturbing specific genes and to predict effects of small molecules, so drug discovery. Uh, I then moved back to Toronto and I joined a startup called RTDS, which was focused on applying a specific machine learning technology in the biomedical space. And out of that company actually grew Biosymmetrics, where I'm the CSO today. And at Biosymmetrics, we're focused on building an integrated framework that allows you to take different types of biomedical data and build workflows that go from the raw data configurations all the way through to machine learning models. And so that's, yeah, a little bit about me. Well, maybe we even have to take a step back because, you know, I, I don't even know if I'm clear on exactly what experts define 
machine learning as. So could you give us a like really a very simple sketch on what is artificial intelligence and what is machine learning? Yeah, that's a great point. Certainly AI is, is probably one of the biggest buzzwords that's around today. And, and there's a lot of excitement and, and, you know, rightfully so. But oftentimes when people are talking about artificial intelligence, what they're really talking about is machine learning. Machine learning as a process has been around for a very long time. The concept is that it's basically pattern identification. You're using an algorithm or some other approach to be able to identify a pattern in existing data and use that pattern to extrapolate relationships to new data. So for example, let's say I've got a clinical data set and I've got medical history for a bunch of people and I know that they're, I know their disease outcomes. I can use a machine learning approach to be able to find a pattern in their characteristics to be able to predict likelihood that they would have the, the disorder, that they have their diseased or non-diseased. I can then use that, that algorithm I've trained and then apply that to a new patient and make a prediction that that new patient then uh, has the disorder or not. So that's kind of a very high level and certainly machine learning uh, spans a lot more categories than that, but just kind of a very basic example. When we get into AI, it's really about automation and it's really about how can we allow the process to be autonomous and function without human intervention. AI itself doesn't have to necessarily encapsulate machine learning, but it typically does. And so when we talk about AI, truthfully speaking, we're talking about processes that are more automated or, or require less human intervention. And we talk about building predictions from data, we're typically talking about machine learning. Perfect. So machine learning finds the patterns. AI is the way to automate the process to find patterns. Is that kind of where we're yeah. going? Yeah, at a very high level. Absolutely. Okay. So how much of this is actually being implemented today in medicine? In, in, let me just put it this way, is that I think, and I, I get this, I think that if you were to take my 23andMe data and, and then compare it against um, say my uh, Fitbit data, you know, my uh, daily regimens of exercise and how my heart rate goes and my sleep. And then you were to compare that with other people's 23andMe data and their Fitbit data and, um, and, and then their disease outcomes. Could you start to make predictions about people? And this is, I understand on a very basic level, but just to get people to understand is, oh, is, that, is that what we're looking at? You know, something that allows us to start to make predictive models based on our data. What a fantastic question. And you, you kind of opened a can of worms there. I feel like this is something I could talk about for a very long time. Uh, at a very high level, the utility of machine learning there is to be able to in encapsulate and interpret your data in a way that a human reader couldn't. So, you know, identifying patterns in, in previous history probably sounds a lot like what your GP or, or your physician has done for a long time. They look at your medical records, they use their, their kind of past experience and they, they make a prognosis and you, you go on from there. We're asking the machine to do the same thing basically because of the overwhelming amount of data. There's any, any number of millions of potential variants that you might have that might impact your health. And there's any number of environmental factors as well. And so how those come into play can be ultimately pretty personalized and difficult for, for a human interpreter to be able to make a conclusion on. And so the big utility of machine learning there is to be able to spot that pattern and to be able to kind of comb through all, all that data to find it. So when we talk about using your own genetic information in a way that can impact your health, we've known about strong genetic associations for a long time. So things like you know classical disorders where there's a very clear association between the mutation and the manifestation of disease, 
they've been pretty obvious, but there's a lot of more complex disorders where there was this kind of missing heritability problem, where there, there, was, um, there was maybe some known genetic contribution, but ultimately a lot of unknown contribution to the disorder. And our hope was that by sequencing the genome and understanding all of the possible variants of the genome, we would start to get a lot more information about the association between you know, mutations and, and disease for especially complex disorders like you know, cancer, hypertension, diabetes. To some extent, we certainly did. And we did ultimately find a lot more genetic associations, but a lot of these other associations can be kind of weak. And so if you've got you know, a, a variant that increases your risk of, of some form of cancer from you know, uh, let's say 2% to 2.5%, you know, that's a pretty substantial increase, but how much does that impact your life? And so you have to look at, okay, what are other environmental factors that might contribute? What are, what are other lifestyle factors? What are other kind of, of, who knows what else that might contribute to my manifesting this disease? And that's really a difficult thing for a person to interpret. And so the kind of hope of machine learning was that we could integrate all this data and have maybe more personalized assessments or more personalized predictions of outcomes and of human health. Well, this is what um, I, I really find so intriguing about this is that, you know, when you, and, and I know we're straying a little bit away from the questions that I originally planned, but this is why I think this is so cool is that I wish that I would have had my grandfather's DNA sequence and my father's and, you know, go back a few generations or what data we should be looking at now from, you know, should we be logging what we're eating every night and should we be logging all of this? Because at some point, we will have the ability to merge these data sets and add more power to those predictive outcomes because we have just, you know, the, the computer does the work. And, and is there, is, is, am I really just totally out in left field here? Or is this something that because of the sensor technology we have, the ability to gather data, should we be gathering more with respect to lifestyle and health? You're not entirely out in left field. The, the terrible truth about machine learning is that you know, the more data you can supply it, typically the better it does. And I refer to that as the terrible truth because, I mean, they're, they're, there's only so much you can reasonably collect. The biomedical data in particular are notoriously complex in the sense that there's a lot of potential bias. Even something like a genome sequence, uh, you know, you would assume would be pretty standardized. Unfortunately, it's not. There are different levels. There are different, uh, you know, different types of, of technologies that can be used to generate a genome sequence that might be prone to particular types of errors and, and what have you. And so it's not just a matter necessarily of collecting the data, but collecting it in a format that's actually interpretable for machine learning in the sense that it's not going to just attach to some bias or some, um, some spurious pattern in the data and interpret that as being a meaningful signal. So as kind of, it, it may not be a bad idea to collect more data and to, to feed machine learning more data, but without a sense of the quality of that data, the data itself can, can be, I don't want to say useless, but can be of limited value. So you actually would have to have machine learning parsing data to be able to predict if it's useful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it's machine learning all the way down. Yeah, I mean, this, is, this is ultimately one of the most difficult problems in machine learning, is trying to um, get at the quality of data and understand the, the underlying biases of the data. If you're working in the field of machine learning, you'll spend you know, 70, 80% of your time in the manual process of, of normalizing, standardizing, interpreting data so that you can ultimately then feed it to a machine learning process. 
this is not something that can be underestimated. And the value of, of having data that are of good quality is, is kind of immeasurable. Yeah, but that's, uh, is that all done by humans, right? So, so when you have humans doing the um, screening and the filtering and getting the data up to speed where it can be used in, in machine learning, you know, does that introduce bias? And how important is it to remove humans from these analyses, both in terms of the cost of a you know, human, uh, which is not trivial in computational um, circles, but also the bias that they might introduce? That's a great question. And so this is, I mean, this leads well into what we do, but this is exactly where we're focused. We feel like this is a problem as, as much as everybody's aware of it, it's still kind of an ignored problem. These decisions that we make from the point that the data is generated to when we start to feed it to machine learning can often be of more consequence than you know, what type of neural network we're using or you know how we're constructing our algorithm. You may have already cast the die in terms of how well your machine learning is gonna perform because you've made certain decisions in terms of who was collecting the data or what time of day. So it is possible to overcome these things and it is possible to account for these things. It doesn't necessarily even require machine learning, but the way that we've approached this is to basically have as much transparency as possible. So for every decision that you're making in your data, no matter how seemingly inconsequential, we'd like to have that, that decision quantified and if possible permuted so we can see the impact of, of if you had made different decisions, how that impacts impacts the quality of the process downstream. Well, this is really intriguing. We're speaking with Dr. Gabe Musso. He's the CSO of Biosymmetrics. And we're talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning and its application, particularly in the area of biotechnology, but also in many facets of our life. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. The Talking Biotech Podcast is a sole production of Kevin Folta. The opinions expressed are those of him and his guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of the University of Florida or the faculty of the Horticultural Sciences Department, its staff, students, custodians, maintenance folks, ladies in the cafeteria, or anybody else. But then again, they probably do. It is science, after all. But let it be said that this podcast is independent of the University of Florida in every way you can imagine except that the host works there, at least for the time being. This podcast was recorded, produced, promoted, and distributed on personal time, using personal equipment, and personal hygiene products most of the time. The website and hosting are paid 100% by Kevin Folta personally. Now, as you might guess, there is a good rationale for having to make these very clear statements. Suffice it to say, the enemies of science and reason continue to exert unfortunate pressures that threaten the long-term sustainability of this educational vehicle. And now, back to the podcast. And now we're back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Gabe Musso. He's the CSO of Biosymmetrics in Toronto, Canada. And we've been speaking about artificial intelligence and machine learning and how they can be applied to help make predictions about large data sets. And it's been an intriguing discussion so far for me because this is what my lab does. Only instead of using machine learning, we use graduate student and postdoc learning. 
and and they do um and and so we're we're using humans in the process that maybe machines could help us with quite a bit and certainly they do you know the software does help merge these data sets but let's talk about some of the ways this has been implemented so far. What are some of the ways in which this has been implemented in healthcare that come to your mind that um, have been particularly ex- uh, successful? So it's interesting you ask that. And, and kind of the context you raised it is important as well. I, I mentioned in the beginning that machine learning has is, is been around for a long time. This concept of identifying a pattern and using that pattern to make predictions for you know, future data, that's a pretty old concept. And, you know, we've turned that machine learning and and certainly machine learning has a pretty specific definition, but ultimately it's not too different from, you know, forms of statistical analysis that you've done routinely and and others have done routinely. Anytime you've kind of extrapolated, uh, you know, linear relationship between variables and you've used that to make a prediction for any new variables, I mean, that in a sense could be considered a form of machine learning. And so if you look at kind of when machine learning started to really be applied in biology, well, it's, it's honestly difficult to say. I mean, there's a lot of, of early cases of you know, data extrapolation you could consider machine learning. That being said, there was truly kind of a, a reemergence of machine learning, I would say, uh, throughout the 90s and into the 2000s, where we were focused on identifying gene and, and uh, protein functions. There was a large volume of data that were starting to come in around the time that we were first sequencing the genome, and we were starting to understand the scope of interactions between different proteins within the cell and different genes within the cell. And this was simply too large a data set to be able to kind of comb through manually and identify patterns. And that expansion of data led to kind of um, a reemergence, I would say, at least in my field, at least that's how I saw it in, in the applications of machine learning. In terms of, of um, you know, AI and, and the emergence of, of neural networks as well, I mean, neural networks, again, have kind of been around for a while, but really seen popularity. You know, Jeff Hinton, who, who's here in Toronto, had a, kind of a huge role in the emergence of, of neural networks. And that really has um, picked up a lot of steam, I would say, within the last uh, five or 10 years, specifically for applications in biology. Uh, because of the nature of, again, of the nature of the data that were being generated and the applicability of neural networks to be able to solve those types of questions. So specifically in dealing with looking at images and being able to identify um, you know, specific uh, abnormalities or, or other areas of concerns from medical images that were increasingly being digitized. So that led more to a, a kind of prominent reemergence of, of neural networks within the AI, sorry, within the biomedical field. So it's kind of maybe a bit more long-winded answer than you wanted, but really it's kind of difficult to untangle, uh, to, sorry, to unentangle um, exactly when machine learning really started to emerge. But in a sense, I think you've probably done a bit more machine learning than maybe you're giving yourself credit for. Well, I, I think um, I think I understand more about this now than I ever did, that even something like 23andMe, where you... You know, where you you send in, you spit in a tube, and they and they sequence your genome. They've developed associations between specific differences in DNA. We call them SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. These differences in DNA and certain diseases or traits or how a drug may affect you or how your response to caffeine is that really just machine learning? In a sense, there certainly is machine learning involved there at several instances. And uh, I mean, not being not explicitly familiar with exactly how 23andMe does it, but knowing how kind of we do SNP association and we generally look to uh, to associate different variants with particular outcomes, 
there certainly is uh, machine learning that can be applied at several steps there. In some sense, it's very much a statistical process in terms of, of, you know, the associations can be calculated using classical statistics, but machine learning can come in at several places, for example, in identifying the quality of variant and looking at sequence information and uh, determining whether a given variant is a sequencing artifact or is a bona fide variant. And even when it comes to association, uh, in terms of data integration and making predictions, that can certainly be a machine learning process as well. Oh, really good. Now, so thinking about the listener here, just to really cement this for us, can you name me some notable successes and failures or maybe how this has been applied to contexts that maybe we may understand or think about all the time? Oh, that's a great question. So the successes, honestly, are, are wide and diverse in terms of applications of machine learning. Again, maybe because it's, my, it's being colored by my own personal history, but the successes I saw firsthand were, were helping us understand you know, as we started to get a lot of information in about uh, what the proteins were, how proteins were interacting within the cell, we really were starting to use a lot of, of network analysis and machine learning to try to make predictions of, you know, a vast array of proteins where we really were uncertain about their function and being able to assign uh, functionality to them. That was something I saw as a very early, at least for me, success in terms of the applications of machine learning in, in genetics and biology. And there are, and you know, you pick up any issue of nature or science and you'll see applications of machine learning to address specific problems uh, within biomedicine. And so there certainly are, are no shortage of, of success stories. It may be not what people will expect when they hear about machine learning and certainly not what they expect when they hear about AI. There's no, you know, there's no completely autonomous process that's, gonna, that's going to generate new drugs or to, you know, you, you don't have a virtual doctor. But a lot of our understanding of how genes function, how proteins function, and how the associations, uh, what the associations are between uh, genetic variants and disease is based on applications of machine learning. Well, you know, a good example, maybe of thinking about this in the context of my work, you know, we have these large data sets of transcriptomic data, metabolomic data, consumer data, uh, genomic data from all these different plant lines and the quality of their fruits and all this stuff. What is a good example of how AI can work for me? And, and, and is it something that we can do? Yeah, absolutely. So QTL specifically, if you're looking to see how much a given variant would be able to uh, affect, you know, let's say expression or expect something, express again, something quantitative, that's a, a very um, tractable machine learning problem. So what you want to do is, is kind of collect all your data. You want to have a process of identifying which features might be the most important. So some, some element of feature reduction so that you're not overwhelming the machine learning process. And then you, you know, you look at your variants in terms of, um, you know, your input data sets, and you know your output in this case, in this case, which would be um, numeric, and so this is a regression problem. And then you can perhaps make a prediction for new QTLs that you've identified that you know what, what would be the corresponding um, impact, or what, what would you predict in terms of the quantitative trait that you're measuring? I hope I didn't misunderstand your problem too much there. No, no, I think you got it. I, uh, but just for listeners, I'll clarify a touch. Uh, when we're talking about QTLs, we're talking about quantitative trait loci, meaning the different places in the genome that contribute something genetically to 
um, a trait of interest. And so we can usually do associations by looking at traits and comparing them against different data like genomic data or trans or even transcriptomics or expression data and have those computationally merged. And the idea is, is can we start to say, okay, this segment of the genome has a role and it doesn't necessarily predict the gene, but it tells us where. And if we have good um, differences between two different organisms in that region of the genome, we can now start to tell, maybe make predictions from, say, a seedling about the quality of its fruit, or make predictions from a baby, about human baby, about um, allergies, or about long-term disease, or, you know, things like this. And maybe that's where this is going, you know, going forward. But if, if you do have data, how accessible are these platforms? Like, if you're somebody who is working in science like me, and we generate a lot of data, and we use the available software... Are there higher latitudes of software that are available if we have the right collaborators or, you know, is there something bigger out there that we could be using to maximize the power of our data sets? I'm trying really hard not to just say, yes, our software, but uh, <laughs> to, give you, to give you a very truthful answer, when we were, when I was a graduate student and postdoc, a lot of this would be customized. So a lot of what we were doing, certainly there were good tools we could rely on that would provide very specific functions, but it was our role to do a lot of manual coding and to um, write software that could kind of bring the whole process together, could allow us to leverage you know, the right genomic package for identifying the variants, could allow us to, to uh, leverage the right transcriptional analysis software, and then ultimately bring this together in such a way that we could then feed it to machine learning software. So that that's ultimately, I feel like how it's still done today, maybe a few years removed from the lab, but this is what, we're, we, what we are certainly aimed at addressing, which is how can we build software that allows this entire process to be more unified? When you have, let's say one person working on handling the genomics, one person that's working on handling the transcriptomics, one person that's doing chemistry, if this is you know a small molecule discovery project, they tend to work independently just because, you know, that requires a lot of three different areas of expertise. And then they'll bring the data set together and then they'll give that off to a machine learning person that will then start to build some, some predictive models. The difficulty is they've all made decisions in that process. And the impact of those decisions isn't really seen when that data set comes together. And so if this was one unified process where those data sets were being processed simultaneously, you could potentially get a much better output in terms of the performance of the model. And so this is a really difficult problem to address, and it's one we've spent a lot of time on. Well, no, it's, uh, you know, and, I, and by all means, I didn't mean to wander into, uh, you know, an infomercial feel there at all. But, I, but, I, but it was an honest question that I feel like we have this extremely comprehensive set of very carefully collected data and extremely expensive data. And I'd like to milk every single bit of whatever we can out of them. And more importantly, find associations and information that we may be missing because we just were not computational experts. And so, you know, knowing that you do what you do and are there other companies that do the same kind of thing as well? Oh, absolutely. So, so I do feel like, and again, I, I don't mean to turn this into an infomercial either. I do feel like we are unique in terms of how we've approached this, but we're not the first people to realize that this is a problem. And so we've seen larger companies certainly make a larger investment in terms of um, data quality and data governance and data management, which will help to have more transparency and have more traceability. For smaller companies, this 
you know, can be more of an issue. And so a lot of people fall into the same trap that, that I did for years, which is, you know, you, you kind of put your data sets together, you run the machine learning, you trust the result that it gives you. And then when that kind of that accuracy that you've seen falls off a cliff, when you start to put that model into production, you don't really know why. And so we certainly have, have taken a certain approach to how we make the models we build more transparent. Uh, and we have seen kind of similar themes uh, from some others in the field as well. But ultimately, what we feel like is, is the solution here is to be able to use data sets in combination. So we would always advocate for anybody that's, you know, that's undertaking projects in this space, for them to focus on including as many uh, orthogonal data sets as they can to help alleviate the bias of any one individual data set. That sounds really good. I guess the other question for me then is, if you were somebody who was, say, starting in computational biology or in, you know, graduate student or even an undergraduate, and you were really intrigued by getting into this field, what kind of courses should they be taking in order to maximize, or, or let's say you're kind of a, a semi-relevant sort of washed up mid-career professor who does a podcast, and you really want to increase your chops at being able to participate in these fields, what kind of courses would you recommend? Oh, there's so many. And the great thing about, you know, where we are today is that a lot of it is available online. There are fantastic courses through either Coursera, Coursera or MIT or, or Johns Hopkins that can walk you through for everything from, you know, data science and learning Python through more advanced, you know, more advanced languages and, and more advanced techniques for larger data, etc. cetera. Uh, I personally, I mean, again, at the risk of being promotional, uh, I'm associated, I'm, I teach here at the University of Toronto through the data science program, which is a program that's, that basically is uh, a diploma program. So it's a one-year program that offers four courses that are focused on learning Python, learning big data, and learning machine learning. And it's designed to take people through from scratch. Now, that's not to say that, you know, this is necessarily the best program. That's the one you should be aiming for. But I, I like a lot the, I, I really like the structure of that program in that it focuses on uh, teaching you a bit of programming, teaching you statistics, which is crucial, and teaching you about how to deal with with big data using tools like Apache Spark and Hadoop. And so ultimately, the recommendation I would give, you can't go wrong learning with learning tools like, like Python and learning statistics. Uh, that would be the place I would start. But ultimately, proceed in the area that interests you. So if you, you know, if you feel like you know you're going to get a lot out of python but you just can't motivate yourself to do it pick some other aspect of, of of you know emerging technology that you feel like really you could find use from and you would find more interesting and start there i've seen a lot of people begin to pick up python or, or things that are more technical and just not be able to progress with it because they, they don't have any pra practical applications in their own work and so it's like learning any other language if I, it's fantastic if i start to pick up a book and learn french but if i don't have occasion to go to france or I don't speak with anyone in my day-to-day -day life that's speaking French, I may never, that, that may just die off for me. And so it's very much similar when you start to learn a programming language or start to learn something in the technological space. Yeah, wee wee to that. Because I used to um, be really good with Python, or pretty good, just in terms of analyzing uh, genomic data. And I could take um, info, like a online script and be able to tweak it to get what I needed out of it. And that was in 2009. And then I became a department chair shortly after that and it erased everything I knew. And now I've been refreshing my 
<laughs> refreshing my skills in this area because I can't keep up with asking the right questions and I can't competently you know, review a paper or be able to really critically analyze or work with my grad students and postdocs who are using this stuff. I'm almost feeling a little left behind. And you mentioned the Johns Hopkins program. I've looked at that one before. In in um, the there's one at MIT, and you mentioned Toronto. But you know, are there other online resources that maybe you could point to to help someone who's feeling a little fossilized, maybe start to just be able to ask better questions and and learn and get up to speed on these technologies. So I'm kind of of two minds of this, to be honest. In some sense, I feel the same way. I am not too far removed from, uh, you know, doing the programming myself. In fact, not far removed at all. But already I'm removed enough that I'll do more harm than good if I try to take one of the amazing developers on my team and take some of the tasks off their hands. They'll ultimately just end up having to clean things up for me. So it, it moves very fast. I think it's great to have literacy. And I think it's great to uh, have enough that you have understanding. But it really is, is and I, I don't mean this to dissuade anyone at all, it, it can move fast. I would say if, if this is something you have a passing interest in or want to kind of keep up to date on, I would say just keep current on what's in Coursera or what's in, you know, uh, what you see on, on you know, Katie Nuggets or, or other kind of areas where they're focusing on um, emerging technologies or emerging kind of um, software additions to programs like Python. But I mean, there, there is certainly still a difference between someone that does that passively like me or someone that's literally doing it as their job day to day. But you can still know enough to be more than dangerous. You can still know enough to, to uh, be able to contribute insight on papers or to, to be able to oversee projects. And so don't let that dissuade you. Don't let the fact that the field moved fast dissuade you from continuing to learn about it. Well, that sounds like great advice. You know, it, it, I mean, leave it to the experts is really the best, you know, uh, advice on everything because I am an expert in some stuff and I always tell people, let me take it, you know, but let, let's look at where this is going. You know, are there, you know, everything that is wonderful about technology has some kind of freaky downside um, that we can imagine, right? It's the stuff that Godzilla movies were made out of. So where is this field going and are there concerns that go hand in hand with the efficiencies gained? Uh, potentially. So when I think of, of, not only concerns, but where the field is going. I think of this, again, because of my lens in terms of drug discovery. There have always been bottlenecks in drug discovery. There are bottlenecks in terms of what's the right target that we want to address in terms of, of identifying a treatment, what's the right treatment, what's the right population. Though all of those are, are difficult problems to be able to wrap your head around. And if you look at what the specific technological bottlenecks are in drug discovery, we've seen machine learning approaches address each of them individually and have success there. We haven't seen kind of an automated AI process that can remove the human bias from this process and do things like compound nomination and compound progression and lead determination and all of that stuff on its own. That may, I mean, I wouldn't say it's necessarily around the corner, but it, it may be in the future. We also potentially have, uh, you know, we, we have the capability to automate a lot of the, the medical process as well. And that again is not to say that we should. So the fact that the technology is there doesn't mean that it's the best approach. We've seen this with automated cars. We've had the technology to have fully automated cars for some time, although it's, it's certainly going through a lot of iteration. But when is the right time that you'll feel, you'll feel comfortable 
you know, turning the keys over to the car and sitting in the back seat. Well, that's probably still a ways off, regardless of, of how efficient or, or how effective the technology is. We're very much further behind that in the medical space. So the next, um, you know, I would say 10 or 20 years are going to be more about comfort and policy and ethics as opposed to necessarily technology. And that should be a conversation that we, we have at a very high level about how ultimately we want care to be delivered and how we want drugs to be discovered. Well, that's great advice. And I, I can't say, I mean, I, I agree a thousand, thousand percent because our ability to create technology is always faster than our wisdom to be able to implement it correctly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's something that I, I certainly do think about. So I'm glad we talked about that. When you, when you see technology emerging, especially technology that's in the AI space and start to think that it's going to, you know, it, it's going to phase out this or that, or, or it's, it's going to kind of cost me my quality of care. That's not something we're seeing on the immediate horizon. And so they, I th- feel like the, this will be still a dialogue. I know personally, and again, I don't want to kind of get in trouble with the community. I still want my medical advice to be delivered by a doctor. I don't want, I don't want an app telling me I have cancer. I want human involvement and I want human oversight. And I feel like that is certainly where the the medical field is moving in terms of integrations of machine learning. So Dr. Gabe Muso, thank you so much for joining me on the Talking Biotech podcast. It really has opened my mind to this so much, and I think the listeners will just love it. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write reviews, tell friends, do what you can to help expand this audience because I really do think we're doing a a good service and the numbers say that that's true. Uh, The big trick to getting more information to more people is critical to speeding innovation and the way it ultimately helps us live better lives for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folta. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.